Scala is a functional and object-oriented programming language built on the JVM. Scala Native takes this language, loved by many, and brings it to bare metal. Scala Native is an optimizing, ahead-of-time compiler and lightweight managed runtime designed specifically for Scala. Dennis Shablin is a research assistant at the EPFL and the primary creator of Scala Native. In this episode, Adam Bell interviews Dennis about the motivations behind the Scala Native project, how it was implemented, and future directions. He also briefly touches on how Scala Native made cold compilation times of Scala code twice as fast. If you're interested in functional programming, compiler design, or you want to learn some interesting tidbits about garbage collector design and trade-offs, then you will like this episode. In past shows, we have covered many of the newer programming languages and the new twists on old programming languages. We've talked about Scala.js, which is related to this episode. We've talked about Swift on the server. We've also talked about Rust at Mozilla. If you want to find these episodes and many others, download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android to hear all of our old episodes. They're easily organized by the categories, and as you listen, the Software Engineering Daily app gets smarter, and it's going to recommend you content based on the episodes that you're hearing. If you don't like an episode, you can easily find something else because our recommendation system knows what you like. These mobile apps are open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to hack on, we would love to get your help. We're building a new way to consume software engineering content. We've got the Android app, the iOS app, recommendation system, the web front end. There's going to be more projects coming soon, and if you have ideas for how software engineering media content should be consumed, or if you're interested in contributing code or just hanging out in the Slack channel and seeing what transpires, come to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily, or join our Slack channel. There's a link on softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd always love to hear from you. And let's get on with this episode. Dennis Shiblin is a research assistant at the EPFL and the primary creator of Scala Native. Dennis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey. Scala is a language built on the JVM. Could you give a brief overview of Scala the language uh, before we get into uh, Scala native. So Scala is this pretty cool language uh, originally designed for JVM. It really, uh, it's really can be described as a mix of a functional and object-oriented programming. It really doesn't bias toward one or another style. It really tries to blend both together because there is both, both good and bad on both ends. Like for example, functional programming is basically all considered like the better type of Scala we have and object-oriented to be more of a Java style, old school less popular side, but still uh, language doesn't bias towards one side or another. You can perfectly uh, do object-oriented, classical object-oriented programming and uh, fancy functional programming at the same time, which is pretty unique because most languages are heavily on one side or another, which is often considered to be like a negative side of Scala because it's very un open-aided, but anyway, that's what it is. Yeah, it makes sense. So Scala lets you kind of, you can combine sort of a Java-style OO with a ML or Haskell-style functional composition? Absolutely, yeah, that's it. What is Scala native? So Scala traditionally has been a JVM-centric language, so it used to compile only to JVM bytecode as the only target, and what it means is that 
It's really a plug and play on JVM. You just compile your Scala courses to bytecode and then you can run it alongside your Java application. That was the original backend, the original platform for Scala, but since then we got way more uh, things. The first, I think the first major experiment to do Scala outside JVM was .NET backend. That didn't work so well because of the differences between how JVM and common language runtime uh, handle generics, so it was a bit difficult. I think the first successful alternative platform for Scala is Scala.js by Sebastian Doran. Um, he, so basically, it's really a, a major difference in terms of how you run your Scala apps because you compile them to JavaScript uh, through this a very elaborate, advanced toolchain they have. And Scala Native is very much a similar project to Scala.js, but instead of compiling to JavaScript, it compiles to native code. And when I say native code, I mean more like uh, C, C++ standalone binaries that completely just don't require any virtual machine uh, to run it. So it just you get x86 or ARM binaries that you can just copy paste into any machine with the same architecture and just run it. Of course, it has good, good and bad of uh, native style uh, development, but uh, it's really kind of the core idea of the project is very simple, is to compile Scala to native binaries. Makes sense. So... You know, Scala.js gives you the ability to run in the browser. What problem does being able to run as a native application solve? So one of the issues with JVM, as I see it, uh, is that JVM is a really heavy, heavy machinery. So it really requires quite a bit of footprint just to run the VM. Uh, so you can see it in terms of uh, memory used. You can see it in terms of application startup time. Uh, you can see it sometimes in terms of overhead of the whole services like just compilation behind the scenes. And it's really because JVM is very, a very advanced, multi-stage, uh, multi-tier VM, and it's, it's really hard to support all this functionality without incurring some overhead. So what Scala Native, as the way Scala Native is different is that we do most of the expensive parts like compilation ahead of time. So it means you already have a pre-compiled and pre-optimized binary. So when you start it, it just runs your app. It doesn't do the whole multi-tier VM thing. So we don't have interpreter, we don't have multiple tiers of compilation, and we just, whenever we emit a binary, it, that's it. Uh, there is no recompilation at runtime, there is no tricks with it, it's a simple binary, which means we have way lower footprint, uh, and both in terms of memory and in terms of startup time. This can be useful for a number of use cases uh, of applications, like for example, command line tools. So for common line, it's tool, it's extremely important to start up quick, do your job, and then die. This is an area where JVM is really bad at right now because just starting the VM is extremely expensive operation. So you definitely see this kind of like initial slowdown if your app is not long running. So that is uh, what people refer to as like the JVM warm-up. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like JIT warm-up. And it also so has to do with the fact that when you run code in JVM, it actually goes through a number of stages. Uh, so first you go through interpreter. Interpreter is really, really slow. It is not meant to be uh, there for a long time. So it tries to go to compiled mode as soon as possible. And there are at least two compilers right now, uh, which are used in production JVM, C1 and C2. C1 emits simple code uh, to avoid the interpretation cost. And C2 does a very, very, adv it's a very advanced optimizer that only optimizes heavily used parts. So basically, you have this a very uh, elaborate machinery, which uh, means that you don't get to optimize code 
only until your application is warmed up. Uh, in native, we have basically equivalent assumption in between C1 and C2. So we already heavily pre-optimize your code before you run it. But at the same time, it's not quite the same as a VM, so it, it draws some problems, pros and cons. Yeah, so if you're if you have a long running Java app or a Scala app, I guess, then the, the costs of this warm up maybe doesn't matter so much. But if something has to start up frequently, then you know, re optimizing it is a lot of overhead. Absolutely, yeah, that's it. And another area apart from command line tools is different types of user-facing apps where you can uh, observe and perceive the startup time, which often are like, you know, simple graphical apps. Like, for example, like start an eclipse takes minutes. I don't know, it's just uh, before it's like, and you never close it, right? Because you're afraid to close it because once you close eclipse, <laughs> you'll have to go through the same thing again. It's basically not eclipse problem as far as I can tell. It's, it's largely a JVM problem because, for example, other IDs start much faster than eclipse. Yeah, I use IntelliJ, but I find the same thing. Yeah, I try to keep it running. In your talk, uh, Scala Goes Native, you were describing the JVM as a, as a golden cage. Is this sort of what you mean by that, or could you describe this concept? Uh, so this metaphor was basically tried to motivate why we um, don't try to artificially limit what you can do in Scala Native like JVM does. In particular, we don't try to sandbox your code so that you can only write a very safe code which ne never escapes the cage, basically. That's what I meant by the cage, is that we let you use low-level, uh, system-level uh, tools like raw access to memory, raw pointers, and stuff like that, which is potentially unsafe, but it's actually necessary in some uh, domains like systems programming where you want to have a very low-level control of your memory. Uh, the benefit is that you get more control as a developer. You don't, you're not limited by the language uh, and the VM because you can do whatever CNC, whatever you can do in C and C++. On the other hand, you do lose some of the um, safety you get on JVM, but this is kind of a trade-off we take. That makes sense. So is this strictly for memory management, or uh, how about interop? So generally, interop is basically... So Scala Native exposes uh, a number of language extensions aimed primarily at interop with C code, and in a way, it's a bit like writing C code in Scala. So we expose things like pointers and structs. So you can do familiar C style programming, but it also means it's extremely easy to call C code. You don't need to go through an, uh, a number of layers of bindings to get there. You can just do it all in Scala without any C and C++ code in the middle. But it also means that if you can call arbitrarily C code, you also can get arbitrarily uh, issues that C code has, like, for example, different types of uh, safety issues around buffer overflows and so on and so forth. So it's definitely a trade-off. It's not free, like, calling C code is not free in terms of, like, safety guarantees you get. But again, this is the kind of trade-off we make. We don't try to be as safe as possible. We try to be as flexible as possible. Makes sense. You want to give people that tool, even if they, you know, it could go wrong. So... How about uh, memory management on the JVM? Uh, so JVM is basically GC-only platform. There are some very well-hidden but extremely well-known uh, areas like SunRisk and Safe, which lets you do unmanaged memory and manage it yourself. Like, for example, you can allocate uh, unmanaged memory through SunRisk and Safe and then do row memory accesses on it. It's basically as unsafe as pointers in C, only 
JVM people try to hide it from you, even though every major performance-centric framework actually uses it. Like, for example, Spark does uh, off-heap memory uh, to manage most of its data because it's just too expensive to allocate everything on GC heap. But JVM people like you to believe that you only have GC, which is the main paradigm. And it's actually like GC on JVM is really good. So very often it, it it's a good idea just to just use that and not do any unsafe memory management. In Scala Native, we say both coexist and you have APIs for both and they're both easy to use. So definitely unmanaged memory is a dangerous thing. You can definitely shoot yourself. But for example, if you want to do some uh, you know, domain uh, specific thing to optimize your memory layout and so on and so forth, you can do that without jumping through the hoops like on JVM. Makes sense. So you know the JVM complaint, it, it purports to be uh, memory managed, but if you look at these high performance apps, they're using backdoors to sort of actually do manual memory yeah. management. Yeah, and it's like most of them really go far away to uh, try to sidestep the cache to find this small doors outside to get more freedom. But it's on JVM, it's really hard to do those kind of things. Uh, that's where the cage metaphor comes in. Yeah. Okay, so. Now that we understand some of the motivations for, you know, getting Scala to run natively, not on the JVM, maybe let's discuss uh, some of the implementation. So could you describe the, the compilation steps that it takes to get from, you know, Scala source to a native application? Oh, sure. So it's actually a bit involved. And there is a good reason we have every single step on the line, but it's actually a really multi-multi-step process. So... First thing you do uh, when you go from a Scala source, so you always start with Scala sources, which is a source of truth. And in case of Scala native, you end up with native binary. But it's not the one step thing like from Scala source native binary. The first thing you do is you do parse and type check and basically you do the pipeline from the main Scala compiler from JVM. And this uh, contains a number of things, but the most important one, I guess, is type checking because type checking in Scala is very involved, we don't re-implement type checking or the language. We keep the same core, the same language as Scala and JVM. And then later, once Scala compiler is almost done, we uh, branch off and we emit something called NIR. NIR is uh, short for native IR, which is our own intermediate representation. So this NIR is the format we work with in our tool chain. And when I say our toolchain, I mean uh, Linker, Optimizer, and Cogen. They all speak this language as if it was uh, like a real language. So to get from NAR to binaries, now we have one step closer because NAR is already quite lower, quite more low level than Scala. So for example, many things are gone. Uh, like there are no nested classes, there are no generics. Type system is much more simpler, and it's actually very close to Java bytecode rather than Scala language. And the main difference from Java bytecode is that it's an SSA form, which makes it very easy to emit LLVM later. SSA is a form for code representation, which is very nice for optimizing compilers. So, so from NIR, we need to get native binary and two major steps, uh, three major steps uh, on this way is first linking. So linking loads a minimal subset of your class pass to satisfy your application requirements. Like for example, an app that doesn't use regular expressions, should not pre-compile regular expressions in the binary, and so on and so forth. So we try to really um, limit an amount of code we put 
in the final binary not to include every single class on the class pass because sometimes class passes get quite bloated even though you don't use some of the things. Sometimes people depend on a library even though they use a single function from it. So we do uh, something ho called whole program that delimination at link time. And then after that step, you get uh, a minimal subset of the class pass, which we optimize uh, through our own optimizer, which removes common uh, patterns, which LVM doesn't know how to optimize well. And then in the end, we emit LVM IR, which is another IR, but now for LVM. LVM uh, is this project for reusable compilers, basically. So it's a core for CLN compiler, and it's also used by many, many other open source languages. And it's actually very well documented and very nice to work with. And from there on, it's basically LVM's jobs to get from LVM IR native code, which we typically don't touch that much. Yeah, so if I understand this, you have your Scala code, you're using the, you're using the, the front end Scala compiler to get some intermediate representation and then doing some transformations and then passing that through to LLVM. Is that the yeah, big that's, picture? That's pretty much the gist of it. And then, um, because everything, because there's, there could be a lot in your class path, you're making sure that you only include things in that binary that are actually part of, that are actually called within the program. We don't know if they're going to be called, but we try to analyze it and kind of do our best guess on what's going to be called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So one of your frustrations with the JVM was that it's garbage collector. doesn't fit uh, every use case. So many listeners uh, may know that there are different types of garbage collection strategies. I was wondering if you could describe uh, a couple strategies for performing garbage collection. So on JVM, we actually have a number of built-in garbage collector. As far as I understand, in Java 9, uh, the default one is called G1. And G1 uh, is the latest collector from Oracle, which is optimized for latency-centric uh, workflows. So typically, GCs are often kind of put in either latency-sensitive or throughput-sensitive buckets. So what latency-sensitive means is that the GC is optimized for shortest pause that the GC can take to collect garbage. And, but these pauses can be extremely frequent, but every single pause is small. And throughput-centric collectors care about not the length of a single pause, but rather the total sum of time spent in GC. So for example, throughput-centric uh, collector can take less pauses, but makes them much longer. And basically on JVM right now, the official ones is G1 for latency sensitive and parallel GC for throughput sensitive workflows, as far as I understand. And CMS, which was previously the default, is deprecated as of Java 9, which is a bit sad because uh, on some of our workloads, like Scala compiler, I think CMS is still the best one. But otherwise, it's basically three main collectors we have right now with CMS being deprecated. The general themes for all of those collectors is that they're typically generational. They're typically at least parallel, often concurrent. So what concurrent means is that collector uh, runs alongside your application and tries not to stop your application as much as possible. So basically it does garbage collection, uh, not just in parallel as in doing multiple threads of garbage collection, but also concurrently to your application. So compared to all of this, uh, so where does scale native stand? Right now, we have a rather simple garbage collector called Imix. It's inspired by a paper. You can see our more information on our website if you're interested. But the general idea is 
It's a single generation uh, collector, which is right now optimized for predictability. It's not concurrent today. Uh, it's stopped the world. And we currently optimize mostly for throughput and latency sensitive is our next big milestone, which we haven't reached yet. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you also have, uh, like, to, as I understand it, you have more than one GC available in uh, Scala Native. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could describe what they are. Right now, the default one is actually not MX, it's called Boem. So Boem GC is this super easy to use plug and play garbage collector, which was designed originally for C and C++. And the reason why it's even possible at all to make it work in this environment is that garbage collection is conservative. So what does it mean? Uh, it means that garbage collector doesn't really require your app to declare ahead of time kind of the layout of all objects. It will conservatively guess what objects are based on their size and, and layout. So for example, if a field, a time-specific offset looks like a pointer, it can consider the pointer even if it's not as long as it satisfies a bunch of properties that GC wants to see from pointers. This is more expensive than precise garbage collection. So precise garbage collection knows exactly where at which offsets you have pointers and which offsets it just data. So it needs to do less work. The main reason why our current new collector called MX is faster is because it's precise. So we do use uh, information about the whole uh, object layout and it's way easier to, to collect the garbage. It's still conservative in one small aspect, but it's typically doesn't matter much. It's uh, the stacks uh, are conservative, but it, it typically it's not a problem. Another cool thing about MX compared to Boem is that it actually uses a very smart data structure for, for allocation and collection, which lets it uh, bump allocate most of the time, which is really important because bump allocation is the fastest way to allocate, and Boem still uses a free list from time to time, and free lists are typically quite expensive in our own experience. And apart from this two, uh, we have another collector called uh, NoGC, or uh, settings called native GC colon equals none. So that, that one lets you completely disable the garbage collector, and the idea behind that one is to kind of have a rough understanding of how much time is spent in garbage collection and what's the baseline performance, what's basically the perfect garbage collector. Because essentially allocating and never freeing is actually extremely close to perfect garbage collection. It's not perfect because it will still allocate objects far apart if objects were not allocated at the same time. So it can still cause problems with memory locality, but most of the time it basically spends zero time in garbage collection, so it means it's as low overhead most of the time uh, for most applications. And we use it as baseline to benchmark our, our GCs. So it's basically main purpose is benchmarking. And apart from that, there are some use cases like extremely short-lived applications which really don't need to uh, manage memory because they like run for less than a second and they don't allocate uh, gigabytes of memory, but maybe hundreds. So for those kind of apps, it's actually beneficial to be able to disable garbage collector because it means they will run at best performance possible. Makes sense. So so none exists as sort of a for performance testing, but in actual fact it can be used. Um yeah. for, for like a command line app. So yeah. you have none, so you can test what you're calling like a you know a, a perfect GC against 
against the two that you have when you do this type of testing uh like how how do they perform compared to a perfect standard so compared to our reference so typically mx is somewhere around 20 percent overhead so this means if you add mx your app will run 20 percent slower in comparison to boem um Boem is somewhere around 100%. So basically, enabling GC slows down your application by a factor of 2x, which is pretty bad. And it mostly has to do with the conservative nature of the collector. Uh, so Imix is at 20%. It's actually uh, still higher than we want it to be. I think we can get to 10 or maybe even less uh, without changing the uh, design of the collector too much. Interesting. Do you, do you happen to know, like 20%, away from absolutely perfect doesn't doesn't sound too bad um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you know um like where the jvm's generational garbage collector would fit on on so such a measure it's a bit hard to compare with something like cms or g1 because they run concurrently so it's typically under five percent and i would probably say even probably even less than that because for concurrent garbage collector you never perform the garbage collection on the actual application thread you have a separate thread which only pauses application to do s- simple things like scan the stack or wait for this condition to hold. So it's typically short pauses of five milliseconds or less. They can be frequent, but typically as far as it's like under 5%. So basically this, this is our like goal performance is to be on par with JVM. Right now we don't guarantee uh, parity with JVM in terms of performance. Uh, so there's still quite a bit of work to be done there. Makes sense. So, you know, some people's complaint with the JVM is sort of the stop the world garbage collection, but you shouldn't go to Scala native to get away from that because that's all you have at this point. Uh, yeah. So at the moment, we don't solve the stop the world problem. So we're looking, we're like researching ways to refine our GC further. But right now, like as of released version, only no GC has no stop the world problems because it doesn't GC. Yeah, makes sense. So now I think uh, I understand how the GC works. I'd like to look a little bit at uh, Scala Native usage. So is Scala Native the same language? Is it Scala or is it something like a superset? So Scala Native at its core is one-to-one Scala. So there are very few uh, differences in terms of how we treat normal Scala language features. They mostly uh, are around edge cases, like what happens when you call a message on a null or what happens when you do a cast, which is, doesn't make sense. So on JVM, those cases are defined to throw exceptions. Some of those are just undefined behavior on native, so it means anything can happen if you do this. Typically, it means it just crashes with a sec fault, which is basically a bit worse in JVM, but still it's easily debuggable through native tools like that will show you a stack trace and will effectively show you as much as a null pointer exception. We don't currently guarantee one-to-one parity in the edge cases, and it's likely we will never have this because it's typically been a non-issue for us. Uh, it's a bit more annoying to debug some of this, but uh, essentially it simplifies our implementation quite a bit. And apart from the core language, which is almost almost exactly the same, like 99% the same, we have a bunch of extensions for interop. So interop extensions are very different from Scala and JVM. They don't have anything similar. We do have row unmanaged pointers and things that go with them like memory 
layout types like structs. So you can have pointer to structs and it has meaningful data layout, which is the same as in C. We also have function pointers and a bunch of other things uh, to basically make it easier to call C code. Generally, you don't have to use this kind of extensions at all. They're actually there only for intro. Pointers are also extremely useful for kind of having a lower level GC free subset of the language that you can use for extremely performance sensitive applications. But again, you don't have to use any of this. So the core Scala is really uh, as close as we, as we can make it uh, to be the same as in JVM. Makes sense. And I guess with the pointers, then you can kind of approach that perfect GC we were talking about. So if, if you've added a concept like structs, like structured types and functional pointers, like doesn't that make it the language like a superset? Like are these new keywords in the language? Uh, so new syntax? We don't add any new syntax whatsoever. So our rule is it should type check and uh, without any problems, but by normal compiler. It might not make sense, but essentially all of our extensions are tied to like magical intrinsic methods or magical annotations, which modify how we compile things. But at the same time, they still type check one-to-one -one by Scala compiler without changes. So for example, from a types point of view, it's the same language. From a runtime semantics point of view, it's quite different, but uh, types are still the same, for example. That makes sense, yeah. I think that's a nice way to do it. So, I mean, because you're using annotations, does that mean that you can actually cross-compile? So the same source can be a, a native binary and a, you know, a jar? Absolutely. Uh, so we do support for cross-compilation. So cross-compilation is done through this SBT cross-project plugin. It's an SBT plugin that lets you cross-compile against three major targets, which is JavaScript, JVM, and native. These targets are basically treated as a separate sub-projects of one mega-project, which is called cross-project. From SBT point of view, they're kind of like separate projects with separate jars, but we try to streamline end-user experience so that it really feels more like one single project, which you really just manage through this uh, cross-project API. But overall, the idea for cross-compilation is you can create a cross-project with one or more platforms, and then when you compile and publish, you publish one jar per every platform you, you want to support. How about libraries? Like the, the Scala standard library, I think, is is kind of very important and kind of gives the language a lot of its a lot of its feel. So do you have the, the standard libraries available natively? So standard library story is a bit involved, but generally the idea is Scala standard, standard library is there and you can use it unchanged. Things like collections and standard types are there and they just work. And the way it works is Scala libraries implemented in terms of Java APIs uh, very often. And instead of trying to rewrite the whole library and have like compatible but different library, we do a bit more involved thing, which gives us a better compatibility story is we implement subsets of JDK APIs, which are used by Scala standard library and popular third-party projects to be able to have the same code on both JVM and native completely unchanged. Like for example, projects like uTest and FastParse, to cross-compile to native, they had zero uh, changes in the source. They only had to change the build to support across projects and that's it. So what about um, the JDK? Like I assume that's underpinning a lot of this Scala standard libraries, JDK calls. Yeah, uh, so basically those are the Java libraries we care about. So in typical, uh, Typically, what it means is we have our own 
pure Scala implementation of Java Lang, Java Util, Java IO, Java NIO, and a bunch of other things, which are essentially the core APIs which people rely on uh, in open source projects and in Scala library. We try to implement those as faithfully as possible to their reference implementation on, a, on the reference JVM, but we don't look at the source of the reference JVM because we try to kind of stay away from the GPL code as much as we can. And essentially, Scala uh, is BSD three clause licensed, and our implementation is BSD three clause licensed. And one of the only inspiration for some of the parts of APIs we implemented was Apache Harmony project, which is um, a re-implementation of Oracle APIs uh, without GPL, uh, but under Apache license. Uh, so it's uh, sometimes we sometimes use it for some cases where it's hard to reverse engineer the underlying behavior of the JVM and we need some help there. Interesting. I, I hadn't heard of that project. So if you're recreating the... Um, I'm just thinking there could be the case where an implementation detail of some aspect of the JDK actually becomes something that, that becomes dependent on. And then when you have a new you know native implementation and somehow that varies and, and things break, have you... Have you come across any cases like this? Uh, we already experienced some of those. Te technically, every time we see some of this, it's a bug in native, and we fix it as soon as we can. There are differences that we know of. Uh, some of them are seemingly minor, but they can still cause accidental breakage. Like, for example, our float to string, uh, like Java link float uh, box type to string, has slightly different output format, which still outputs the same number, but has sometimes more trillion zeros than the one on JVM. And it has caused some open source test projects which rely on two string output to be exactly the same as in JVM to fail. We try to fix those as fast as possible. But for some of them, it's a bit hard. But our goal, our philosophy is if you can observe the difference from the reference implementation, it's a bug. And we have it either on issue tracker or fixed. Well, that's a, that's a hard standard to hold yourselves to. I mean, to me, it almost seems like you know, their tests shouldn't be dependent on the number of zeros that a two-string implementation does. Yeah, but yeah I know. <laughs> I'm interested to, to hear if any, uh, like, of the large Scala frameworks uh, can run on native. I'm thinking, like, uh, Spark or Akka. Uh, I don't even know, the Play framework. Has any large project been taken over? So, as far as I know, nothing major has happened yet. Probably the biggest code base that has been cross-compiled is Scala C, which has been done as part of our recent experiments. Technically, it's not hard to compile the source to NIR, like the first step. What's hard is to satisfy all of the Java dependencies, all of the Java library assumptions, uh, which are expected by these projects. Like, for example, to run Akka, you need like good I.O. support. Like, for example, to run Akka HTTP, you need complete socket support. Some of these parts are still working for us. Like, for example, sockets has been just merged in a Initial support for Sockets has been just merged in the previous release, and we're still working there. So um, it's a bit a bit early uh, for like major frameworks like Spark to just happen out of the box. But we are constantly looking at basically what's blocking people in terms of Java library coverage and in terms of APIs we support. And in fact, we are often uh, implementing things just based on reports of people trying to port libraries. Typically right now, it's a smaller scale open source projects like Utest and FastParse. And, but still for those, even for those to run cross-compile and test them, it often like all of the small differences in the library semantics are important. 
So you mentioned Ascala C, the, the compiler has been has been ported over. Could you describe like why and how that went? So they had this like still private, kind of mostly private experiment to port the Scala compiler to, to the Scala native. And the idea is right now on JVM, because of the startup issues, you kind of have to have uh, SBT always in the background because otherwise compiler is just unusably slow. It's only usable after it's warmed up, after a few compilations. But if you have native, we don't really have to have this problem because the very first run is already optimized. So you can already run optimized code immediately. And what we observed uh, in our very early experiments right now is that we offer significantly faster performance on cold compilations. And it, on simple projects like Understand's line of code, it can be like times faster. So basically, cold build uh, with Scala C and JVM can be like two to three times slower than uh, cold build on native. Wow, that's that's amazing. I, I mean, one of my frustrations with Scala is, uh, yeah, the cold compilation time can be longer than any other language that I can think of. So what were some of the challenges of of this, of moving it to native? So probably the major challenge was to have enough I.O. So we had a long story of, of doing uh, file I.O. and different types of file I.O. because Scala C like, uses almost every single type of file I.O. JVM has. Uh, don't ask me why, uh, I don't know, but uh, it basically uses N.I.O., it uses Java I.O., and, and a bunch of other things. So also things like JAR and Zip APIs. So most of those has, have been contributed by Martin Duhem from Scala Center. Um, and it's been extremely helpful to make this even possible because essentially without these libraries a project depends on, it's hard to run it on native. So basically those are probably the hardest parts. We also had uh, have a work in progress port of um, Scala ASM. So, uh, so Scala ASM is a fork of ASM library, which is a Java bytecode generation toolkit, which basically lets you programmatically emit Java bytecode. That's what Scala C does all the time. So we have a limited uh, subset of that library ported to native uh, to have enough APIs to, to make Scala C compile and emit class files. But otherwise, those basically were the only challenging parts. So we only kind of the library problems, we haven't really discovered any major bugs in Scala native this way. So as soon as we had enough Java libraries, it ran basically. That's basically it's a typical story of porting stuff from native. Once those libraries are in place, then, then it works great. So if I have a if I'm in Scala native and I have access to C as well as to you know Scala and JDK libraries, like what is a string? When I create a string, is that a native string? Is that a is that a Java string? Is it immutable? So Scala string is an instance of type Java lang string, which is immutable string baked by a Scala array, which is also garbage collected, uh, which is quite different from what C has for arrays, right? So C has just uh, basically a sequence of bytes in memory, which end with trailing zero. It can really be, this memory can be really anywhere because it's C and it's untyped and so on and so forth. So when you call an API which expands, expects a C string, you need to convert Scala strings to C strings. Uh, in some cases where you know you have the same data representation in both Scala and C side, you can share data structures, but often you have to uh, copy this data over if they're in completely different formats. Like for example, for file IO, when you read or write uh, bytes, we can just share memory uh, 
with scala native arrays without copying. Uh, so it's not often the case that you have to copy data over. So you can you can use either, and you get to choose, and there's some helpers for going back and forth. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see why that would be very useful. What hardware architectures, what platforms can Scala Native run on? So technically, we have a very little requirements, but right now uh, we only test on 64-bit architectures. Our CI, like all-time CI, is um, Mac and Linux 64-bit Intel. People have reported, and it seems to work on 64-bit ARM unchanged also. We don't officially support ARM at the moment, as in we don't have CI for it. But generally, just about any 64-bit architecture should just work out of the box. Uh, we only had reports about ARM and Intel, but maybe more obscure things like PowerPC would work too, but we don't know for sure because we don't have this kind of hardware. So basically anything with 64-bit pointers should just work. I think now I kind of understand a lot of the usage around Scala Native. What interesting projects have you seen making use of this project? So there have been a number of experiments uh, going around. So one of the more interesting ones, there is this experimental framework in development called Denizor. And it's actually very, very early stages, but it tries to be like native first uh, web framework, which currently is built on simple stuff like CGI. Uh, the author is experimenting with FastGI now, and it seems like it's an interesting place to be because up until the point we have uh, a stable web framework, basically the first framework to market will be the main framework for Scala Native probably. So it seems like Dinosaur has like the biggest lead uh, to market so far. And there is already quite a bit of code working and quite a bit of experiments. And you can check one of the Richard's blog posts. I think we had some of them retweeted from Scala Native Twitter. Uh, but basically, the idea is to do a native first web framework, which is pretty cool. I've also seen people do different types of common land tools. And this is basically the area where we excel, and this is the area where JVM is often borderline unusable performance wise. Just because of the warm-up time, yeah, if you, if you write a command line tool, it just is slow. Yeah. So because of that quick startup time, I'm interested if anybody has thought of or if you think it'd be a good idea to use Scala Native for things like uh, Amazon Lambda, like uh, serverless computing. It's probably an interesting idea. I've never seen anyone try it on. It would be interesting to see how it works out. I saw, I think I saw some talk on your website about uh, compiling down to uh, iOS, like to make an iPhone app. Is that a, is that a real thing or? Uh, so people try to uh, compile it to iOS and it seems to work in principle. Uh, the main challenge with iOS uh, is interop with Objective-C. Right now we don't support Objective-C, so it's basically you're a bit in an uh, uncomfortable place. Uh, so right now, as far as I know, Nobody's actively trying that. So it's possible in principle, but it's not directly on our shared list in terms of the things we want to do now. I think that you mentioned earlier that you were inspired by Swift with the uh, LLVM intermediate language. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so how, how did it inspire the implementation of Scala Native? So Swift is cool and everything, but the major inspiration for Scala Native was ScalaJS because before ScalaJS, it was basically considered uh, like general truth that it's too hard to implement Scala outside JVM. So essentially, major major uh, inspiration for Scala is Scala.js uh, and not Swift. 
Uh, so the way Swift influenced Scala Native is mostly in terms of um, compiler uh, technology, in terms of what we do under the hood. So Swift has this uh, intermediate language called SIL, which is short for Swift Intermediate Language. And it's kind of like higher level uh, LVMIR. And it's basically the area we're also aiming for with NIR, like higher level LVMIR-like thing. The main difference between SIL and NIR is that SIL is reference counted and NIR is garbage collected. And basically, that's probably the main uh, major difference between the two. But otherwise, they're trying to solve a similar problem. Both are representation for high-level optimizing a compiler for high-level language. And they both try to optimize parts which LVM cannot do well, because LVM is actually a very low-level API and very low-level representation. Because, for example, some things are just simply gone by the time you emit LVMIR. One of our long-standing issues is performance of virtual dispatch. Uh, we already did a lot to make it pretty fast, uh, but still, uh, on LVM, um, when you compile virtual dispatch, you typically end up with calls through function pointers. Basically, this is what you compile down to. And when you're at that low level of abstraction, you it's really hard to optimize this away. So LVM typically does very little, close to nothing to optimize virtual dispatch. So this is what we do ourselves. So SIL also solves a similar problem. It basically, it's a, a format for pre-optimization before LLVM optimization happens. So you try to make LLVM job as easy as possible and to, to emit high-quality coding. Was there any challenges with having a language that has two paradigms, like Scala, and, and kind of having this compile to, to uh, LLVM? Actually, I don't think this... Uh, to nature thing was a big problem. Uh, probably the main reason is that essentially Scala compiler already does functional to object-oriented part of compilation. Essentially, uh, all of the high-level features are all of the high-level functional features are replaced by equivalent object-oriented features. So typically, what you end up by the end of the Scala compiler is very object-oriented code. And essentially, most of our challenges to make functional code work well is are the same as to make object-oriented code well. Because in the end of the day, uh, for example, uh, closures are just object with virtual methods, just the same as any other object-oriented thing. So basically, it all compiles down to the same representation where it has the same uh, format for both object-oriented and functional features. That makes sense, yeah. So that kind of part is taken care of for you. What, uh, what features are up and coming in Scala Native? So right now, uh, we are pretty much complete in terms of language support. So we don't know of any major semantic difference, which will be a breaking change as in. We would like to fix it as soon as possible. So, And most of the innovation right now is happening in libraries. So we are slowly working towards more, bigger and bigger coverage of our implementation of Java APIs. One of the major things which we're trying right now are multi-threading APIs, like for example, things like locks, uh, concurrent atomic primitives, uh, and so on and so forth. And apart from that, also networking and things like that. So basically, those are typical uh, APIs you would need for a backend microservice kind of app. This is kind of the area which we see Scalative being used more in the future. Um, so apart from library innovation, we do lots of lots of work on the uh, compiler code quality and runtime code quality. So basically, those are small iterative changes of the common patterns we see basically to improve performance, to 
reduce overhead, to reduce footprint, uh, to make it even more lightweight, and so on and so forth. I guess that's pretty much what it is. Like, one of the areas where probably see the biggest changes, which are like non-iterative, incremental, slow convergence towards better performance, are changes to, to the garbage factor. It's probably the area where we could do things significantly better than what we do now. So if people would like to learn more about Scala Native, uh, where should they go? The start place is our website, scala-native.org, and our Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash scala underscore native. Those are two central places for announcements, uh, latest releases, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can also go to Gitter, and uh, so Gitter is like a nice, cozy chat room for, like, if you just try and scala if something doesn't work or you have a problem, it's basically a place where you go to, to ask questions. And of course, for all of the active development, we use GitHub and GitHub issues like pull requests and discussion on what's going on is happening over there. So basically, if you subscribe to Twitter and Gitter and GitHub, that's pretty much you will see everything that's going on. And uh, I understand since you first announced this project, uh, you've had a lot of contributors. Is there a lot of contributions coming in? There's actually quite a bit of contributions. Right now we have a bit more than 60 contributors overall. It's really nice because people often contribute sometimes small things, sometimes bigger things, but it's really, really nice to see people interested in the project and trying to help as much as they can. Yeah, that's great. It's great to have a community involvement that it's not just a, you know, a couple people working away on it. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dennis. It's been great to learn about Scala Native. Thank you for having me.